you're listening to The Lit Review, a podcast where organizers interview organizers about books. In this moment of urgency, mass political education is key. We recognize that political study is not always accessible for a variety of reasons. Our goal with The Lit Review is to be a resource that brings out key information from relevant books to the masses. Think SparkNotes in podcast form. I'm one of your hosts, Paige May, and thank you for listening to The Lit Review. Hello and welcome to The Lit Review. My name is Paige, I'm your host for the day, and today we are talking to L.A. Kaufman, the author of Direct Action, Protest and the Reinvention of American Radicalism. Welcome, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. We are recording today from the Seminary Co-op Bookstore in the basement, and there will be random noises that you hear in the background. So you'll hear phones going, you might hear a few folks talking, just bear with that, please. And would you mind, L.A., would you mind just sort of introducing yourself a little bit? No, I'd be glad to. Um, I've been in and around grassroots movements for 35-some years now. Um, I've been an organizer of many different movements. I've been a participant. Um, I've spent many years as a journalist covering movements. Um, so I've been kind of in and around a variety of different kinds of radicalism since the early 80s, since uh, shortly after Ronald Reagan was mm -hmm. elected. Um, I started my activism here in the Midwest. I grew up uh, in a, a suburb of Milwaukee and became radicalized around the, the issue of reproductive rights when I was a teenager um, and there was an attempt by the Wisconsin State Legislature to pass a parental consent law for minors who wanted to have an abortion and that was the issue that got me um, involved and organizing in the first place back in 1981 and I've never looked back. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> um, and about a decade after I began organizing I started working on this book, which means this book has been, uh, it was in progress for 25 years. I obviously did not work on it the whole time. Um, but it, it is the result of a lot of years of, um, of reading, of doing research. I mean, I did a lot of archival research for this book. I did a lot of oral histories. Um, there are people I interviewed across a span of decades, right? Because mm -hmm. I, I interviewed them early in the process and then over time. Um, uh, but also trying things out, right? So this isn't this isn't just an academic exercise. When I'm, um, I don't use the first person in the book, but it very much uh, my observations very much grow out of having not just read and studied and thought about movements, but having been part of them and having been part of um, campaigns and movements that lost, and having been part of campaigns and movements that won. Absolutely. Okay. I am I, I am someone who heard about this book and got very excited. And um, I, I got a copy of this a few days ago, so I've only skimmed it. But can you tell me a little bit more about what was your goal in writing the book? Why, why did you spend those 25 years working through this? Well, coming of political age in the 80s... Um, uh, I mean, there's some there's some parallels to this moment, of course, because there was a sharp turn to the right that left a lot of people startled. That that for many of us felt like an existential threat. Um, back in those days, a lot of us lost sleep thinking that that a nuclear war was imminent. Um, and of course, back in those days, many many thousands of thousands of people were dying of AIDS. 
Um, you know, there were all these very profound threats that, that were happening. There were many other crises at the time. Um, but, you know, when you came of age in that era, the 60s as, the, as a myth and, and as a model loomed so large. And there was this sense of, of coming of age in this time when there were these incredible political challenges and, we, and the left just seemed to be losing and seemed to be um, powerless and seemed so much of, of what was happening, it, it was, seemed kind of stale and tired to me. And over the course of the, the next decade, over the course of the 80s, some new kinds of organizing started to pop up and I started seeing some uh, some real shifts in the political landscape and I was trying to make sense of it to try to, to to tell the story of what happened to the American left after the 60s and that proved to be a much more challenging project than I expected I mean partly I'm uh, you know not a prolific writer it takes me a long time to write um, uh, and it's a struggle for me but but um, but usually I find when I have a struggle writing, it's because my thinking isn't clear. And I it took me a really long time to see a story out of this complex um, tapestry of movements. Um, in in fact, one of the the, the 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 fundamental frameworks of my book is to argue that there's been a, a structural shift away from the ideal and the model of a single left to a, a landscape that's a proliferation of many different movements, um, many different kinds of radicalism, many different kinds of political identities, um, so issue-based movements, identity-based movements, all interacting in this very complicated landscape and, and making sense of how that happened and what that shift meant politically. Um, so it took me you know, quite some time to, to be able to see the story in this, you know, mountain of material that I have. Some people, my, my book is, is uh, in the end, is 175 pages of text about, and some people wonder, you know, I worked on it for decades, like, <laughs> why isn't it, you know, a thousand pages? Mm -hmm. um, and, and what I would say is the longer I worked on it, the shorter it got. Because mm -hmm. once it clicked, once I saw the story and the threads and the themes, it all kind of pulled together. And, and in a lot of ways, I, I feel like kind of more history had to happen for me be, to be able to write this history. And in particular, um, what tied it all together for me in my mind as a story was Ferguson and the, um, the, the transformation of that uprising into a nationwide movement of Black Lives Matter and the movement for Black Lives and the way in which that particular piece of the history unfolded to me tied together all the themes I've been looking at for the previous decades of organizing so can you walk us through the book a little bit more what do you cover yeah the um so the book is it's just four chapters um uh it begins the the first chapter is called May Day and it's about this crazy action that almost nobody has heard of that happened on May 3rd which is the day we're recording this podcast so yes. today's the anniversary of um, the, the May Day action in D.C. It was this crazy action towards the tail end of the, um, the Vietnam anti-war movement by a group of mostly white anti-war radicals who decided to try to shut down the federal government through direct action, um, which in their case meant, um, you know, pretty raucous blockading tactics. Um, and it ended up being... Um, the, the largest mass arrest, sweep arrests in U.S. history. Over 7,000 people were arrested in the course of one day in what was um, a military operation. Nixon 
um, and, and his attorney general uh, called in. They brought in not just the National Guard, which we've seen happen many times, but they brought in the Army. They brought in the Marines. There were helicopters landing at the Washington Monument, and they swept. They had orders to sweep everyone off the street. They arrested 7,000 people in the course of a day, had to put them in um, RFK Stadium because there were so many people that they filled up the jails. Um, and it's this action that almost nobody has ever heard of, um, and it contains, kind of, in the way it was organized, it was the first attempt to organize a big national demonstration in a decentralized fashion mm -hmm. and to use affinity groups, which are these small units um, for organizing that have been used in a lot of direct action contexts. It was the first time that people organized on that basis. It's a moment where you see um, some of the, the tensions and the um, with the rise of identity politics and how that's going to play out and transform the landscape of, of organizing. Um, so, the, so the whole first chapter um, looks at, at this action and as kind of a set piece to set up the themes of the book. Um, um, it was, you know, they, they were inspired by uh, this action that never happened that was planned by the Congress of Racial Equality in 1964. Um, when the, the World's Fair was happening in New York City, and they were going to do a stall-in and have cars stalled on the freeways all around um, where the World's Fair was happening in order to blockade it to deal with questions about um, employment and racial disparities in housing and a whole range of, of civil rights and, and economic justice issues that CORE was working on in New York City in the, in the mid-60s. And it was so controversial that it was dropped, and they never actually... Did it so? Um, you know, seven seven years later, these white hippies pick up this idea from the the most what at the time was one of the more militant wings of the Black Civil Rights Movement, and and used it, and ended up it actually um, persuaded Nixon that he needed to find an end to the war. It freaked him out so profoundly. It it brought the specter of of revolution to his doorstep, um, and it was. It was like, you know, the, the, the white people are rising up to shut the government down. And, you know, and <laughs> oh, we're no. doing so nonviolently so they couldn't, like, get out and shoot them, right? Mm -hmm. You know, in the way, in way that, you know, the other anniversary may, that we're coming up on May 4th, when, you know, we think of uh, Kent State, the moment when, you know, there mm -hmm. was, a, there was two, a year earlier there had been this rise of this very militant protest, um, which had been responded to with, with, uh, with armed, mm -hmm. with live ammunition. No one was killed during the May Day 71 protests. Um, yeah, we are getting a lot of phone noise in the background <laughs> here. Sorry, listeners. Um, so then there's three more chapters. The, the, my second chapter is called Small Change, and it, it looks at a lot of ways in which movements um, adapted to this broad sense of crisis on the left by looking inward, by um, shifting to new structures, by shifting to a lot of decentralized structures, by building institutions, by working on community building, digging in for the long haul, um, but also pulling away from direct engagement with power, you know, as a kind of a, you know, a, a transitional phase, but that was also a kind of um, reaction to a sense of defeat. Um, and then I shift in the third chapter, which is called In Your Face, um, to... Uh, the, the wave of activism that, that first got me wanting to write this book, which um, essentially is ACT UP and its imitators. So um, ACT UP and the many groups that were inspired by it um, um, and the way in which they um, 
managed to, to take the energy of direct action protest and, and a lot of techniques that had been refined in the black civil rights movement and in many other contexts and you know, apply them to this enormous crisis that seemed to have no solution and, and ended up saving literally millions of lives by um, finding a way to transform the way in which um, medication experimental drugs were, were tested and approved and distributed in this country. Um, so, you know, bringing these kind of earth-shattering changes through this persistent particular model of um, very aggressive direct action. Um, uh, and there's, you know, many other movements besides ACT UP that did this, but they're the, I think of as the, um, the, the most significant. And uh, the final chapter turned up um, goes um, more or less from the mid-90s up until um, the moment when uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement goes national after the non-indictment of um, the, the uh, police officer who killed Michael Brown um, and the uh, non-indictment in the Eric Garner case when there was that, that, that incredible wave of protests all over the country where people were shutting down bridges and freeways and, and tunnels and, and, you know, huge numbers of people were really out in the streets to, to, to um, protest police violence and white supremacy. Um, so that's, that's where it ends. So the book kind of comes up to the, the very threshold of, of the moment we're in now. It comes right up to, to before um, this election. Um, in fact, I read the very, very final proofs on the day after the election. Wow. <laughs> so, which was kind of heavy because it was kind of a heavy day for all of us anyway. <laughs> mm -hmm. And here was this book I had worked on for 25 mm -hmm. years and was finally was coming cool. out. And, and, and I had one last chance to read it in light of the election results. Um, and make any last changes. Um, and I only made two. I added two sentences, and that was it. Because um, what I what I realized sitting down and, and reading it then was, um, uh, you know, I've gone through it. It goes through this this very long arc of history, but ultimately what you know, I didn't set out, uh, I mean, I wanted to write a history that was faithful to what had happened on the ground, not something that was um, necessarily you know, prescribing what people should do. But the, the lessons that I found in, in the history are, are first and foremost, that the protest and organizing work. They don't always work, and some kinds work better than others, but by and large, they work. Um, and, um, and that our, you know, our movements have been really quite successful, not in all arenas, but in some arenas, in, in winning despite crisis and backlash. A lot of what we've been able to do at the grassroots is, is um, even as um, in some ways the, the, the right has captured more and more institutional power, we've managed to win victories in the midst of that. There's a, there's a big loss that's happening, but there's victories that punctuate that. And I think there's strategies and lessons that are extremely applicable to the current moment that you know people can draw from seeing what has worked in the past. Before we get into the the what has worked and that's something I, I'm very excited to hear more about, can you talk, um, there's a, a few terms that are being used, right? So the first is just the title of the book, Direct Action. What do you mean by direct action? Right, well, I define it pretty broadly because the, I mean, the debate about what it, it means or doesn't mean is part of you know the the political work that happens with inside movements, and and there, you know there's going to be 
um, almost as many definitions of it as there are different movements. I define it to encompass all the tactics that are outside the established mechanisms of participation in our political system and some that are right so there's these there's you know there's all these ways these kind of authorized ways to take part in our our political system you can vote you can register to vote you can vote you can um, contact your representatives you can go to their office you can go to their town hall meetings you can attend hearings you can you know deliver letters to them all these kind of standard forms of civic participation so when those are not those avenues are either unresponsive or blocked. There are a variety of other approaches that people use, and I call all of those direct action. As I said, I sometimes include things, for instance, I mean, if you're trying to register to vote, but you're in the racist right. deep south, and people are actually, are not like, are losing their jobs, or losing their homes, or being driven out of their community because they're trying to register to vote, to me, that becomes direct action, even though it's an establishment of political participation. Um, you know, more recently, one campaign I write about in, in the book was when a group of lesbian Avengers went out to Idaho to, to campaign um, against uh, an, uh, an anti-gay initiative there, you know, one of these hate uh, initiatives that was happening in the mid-90s. And they, they were doing canvassing, which in a lot of ways is just like a standard, you know, plain vanilla kind of civic participation, but they were going door to door in whatever it was, 1994, 1995, and saying, hi, I'm a lesbian, and I want to tell you what it would mean to me and the people I love if you vote for this. I call that direct action. So um, so in some ways, for me, it's defined by its boldness, by its breaking of the norms of participation, even if it's, you know, even uh, if the norms are not the same as the law, you know, it was, it was the law that black folks could register to vote in the South, but that was not, in fact, the norm or the practice. Um, so and I'm, I'm interested in defining it broadly because I think, um, you know, the movements and campaigns that win are the ones that are, um, are often, you know, the ones that are willing to use the broadest array of tactics as they approach their goal and, and mix it up in new ways, innovate new tactics. But, you know, there's no single form of protest um, that always works and movements that just do the same thing over and over again. If all you're doing is always having a march and rally, you're not mm -hmm. going to be effective. Um, so people sometimes when they hear about protest, all they think of is a march or a rally. But there's many, many, many different ways that people can um, can leverage their power through protest. And, um, you know, those are just the most known. I had written down, I know we had said a couple, but the one, so the other ones that came up were um, identity-based organizing, if you mm -hmm. would want to define that, and, and, and as opposed to issue-based, and if power, if you have a definition of power. Oh, boy, I don't know if I have a definition yeah. <laughs> of power. That's a good one. That's like a really get down to fundamentals. I don't know if, I mean, it's the it's the capacity to to do what you want or do make happen what you want to have happen, um, uh, I guess. Well, I guess that would be my definition. Um, yeah, I mean, identity politics uh, is obviously, it's a controversial uh, term and it's a controversial phenomenon, but it's one that, that, that people can... Um, uh, have be be debating about while holding different understandings of it. I mean, to me, the the basic definition of it is is it's organizing 
from um, from your own experience, whatever your experience is, or organizing with attention to how personal lived experience shapes political uh, perspective and participation. Um, so, um, uh, you know, I mean, I kind of think all politics is identity politics and that a lot, you know, a lot of what passes as not being identity politics is just the identity politics of white men. Um, so, it, you know, in some ways it gets used as, uh, you know, as, a, as, as like an othering strategy to just uh, anybody else, their politics is identity politics. Um, but there's, there's something, um, there's something important there because identity politics in a lot of ways poses such a fundamental challenge to some of the older models of what the left is, um, to particularly, I would say, um, socialist traditions on, on the left um, and to the ideal of um, the party as like a single unitary um, formation that uh, um, is the primary vehicle for political work. Mm -hmm. So, right, like it's about class, not about race. Right. Kind of pushback that we hear sometimes now. Okay, so I would love to hear more about what are the lessons that you you have gleaned from this history that you've witnessed, that you've observed, that you've studied. Um. Well, well, first of all, is that we have um. There's a body of knowledge that organizing. Um, I mean. Uh, in some ways, I was I was on a, a panel a couple of weeks ago with um, with the Native American organizer Judith LeBlanc, and she was saying, you know, organizing is as old as dirt. Like Saul Alinsky didn't invent organizing; people have been organizing forever, right? So, people have been organizing forever, um, and some of you know what happens is that we have new technologies and, and terminologies that codify things that people have been doing in, in struggle forever. But um, but there's a there's a body of of knowledge about how to organizing a set of practices that have been handed down that have been passed from from organizer to organi and or to organizer and activist to activist for decades um, and that really constitute a rich tradition that um, is like is like a resource bank for us to turn to um, that we really have a rich body of knowledge of how to do this and how to win um, oftentimes more often than not um, that knowledge has been um, passed from movement to movement by women organizers who have been, um, in most cases, disproportionately the bridges from movement to movement. And it's not just women, it's been disproportionate, you know, compared to their, their numbers in the population, it's been disproportionately queer women and it's been disproportionately women of color who have developed this body of knowledge and passed it, you know, who, who, you know, maybe did anti-war organizing during the Vietnam War and then anti-nuclear organizing and then worked in the anti-apartheid movement or, you know, what have you, you can follow these personal life histories and trace this from movement to movement and see these ties. You know, people, part of what's happened with this shift to many different identity and issue-based movements is people think of those as being separate fragments and don't see that, in fact, they're webs. Um, and that often, you know, the connective tissue is often women. Um, it's who, you know, who is carrying knowledge from movement to movement and building a tradition. So, so we have we have this, and we have a very rich body of knowledge, particularly 
now as we're facing this incredible onslaught of, of challenges, I think it's important to look back at that and say, you know, going back for decades now, well before where my history begins, we have, um, you know, people who have um, pioneered these, these enduring techniques that work, that work for creating um, a crisis for those um, who we need to change and pressuring them to make changes they don't want to make um, in order to um, accommodate our collective power. Like we, we, we know how to do this. We don't know how to do this always, but we, you know, we know a lot. Um, so, uh, and, and what, we, uh, what I've seen in, in particular that, that works is that movements that are willing to um, be bold, be persistent, and aren't afraid to be unpopular are often the movements that win. We're hearing a lot in this moment since the election about how, you know, maybe we need to reach to the middle and then what about the alienated white working class and should we be reaching out to these Trump voters and is that where we should be putting our political energy? And I say, I mean, if people want to engage those folks in productive discussion, rock on. Uh, you know, I, I'm not going to say that's a bad thing to do, but I don't think that's the leading edge of what we need to be doing. Um, you know, uh, any movement that you look back at that we now celebrate for what it accomplished was probably pretty controversial and unpopular at the time, um, was probably pretty marginalized, was, was, was likely to be facing like active repression from the state and from other opponents. Um, you know, people look back now at the civil rights movement and they think like, you know, I mean, I, I, it's kind of, you know, people sort of assume like, oh, oh, all, all the good, the, all the good hearted people of the world were on the right side of history. And then, no, no, they, you know, I mean, people, I mean, people were murdered for being civil rights, I mean, routinely murdered for being civil rights activists. And even actions like, you know, the lunch counter sit-ins that, that seem so iconic were hugely controversial at the time. We forget that. We think, we think, oh, nobody was really on the side of the of the the whites who were spitting at them and throwing things at them. Like, actually, yes, they were. And unfortunately, you know, one of them now heads the Justice Department, and you know, and um, and a woman just got uh, convicted today for laughing at him in his confirmation hearing. Oh wow! Yeah, she's facing a year in jail. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Things are pretty bad when. Yeah, a white woman is facing a year in jail for laughing during Jeff Sessions' confirmation hearing. Um, so, the you know, so the uh, you know, like uh, ACT UP, for instance, was was never it was never that large. You know, I, I I just came. I was at the climate march in in DC last weekend, you know, which was phenomenal. It was like two hundred thousand people. ACT UP never had two hundred thousand people in the street. Their very biggest actions, their very biggest ones, the FDA and NIH, maybe they got ten or 15,000 people. Most of what they were doing were in the hundreds or the thousands. You know, there were some big gay mobilizations that ACT UP was part of, but they weren't, you know, they weren't a mass movement. They weren't pulling masses of people out in the street. They weren't trying to persuade by getting the most people assembled in one place. They were doing it by being very targeted in their actions, finding finding who can give them what they want and what is it going to take to make them so uncomfortable that they do it, 
right? How are we going to keep the pressure up so that the best, most um, logical choice for your opponent is to give you what you want, to get you to go away or to get, or get you to sit down at the table and work things out. Um, so, you know, it's those, it's those qualities that jump out to me. And that, that's why the focus of the book is direct action is, you know, direct action. It's, it's often fairly small groups. You know, there's a risk of them being too insular and being, you know, um, kind of in their kind of cozy, comfortable place where it's a world of just activists talking to each other and not reaching out to ordinary people. But um, uh, even with that risk, it's, it's that kind of bold approach, I think, that has won victories time and time again. Okay, so I, I heard you have to create a crisis for the person that has the power to change, yep. what it is you need changed, put pressure on those people, uh, be bold, be persistent, and uh, and be prepared to be unpopular. Right. right. So what what do you see right now that you uh, do you find that happening right now? Like what what are, what's working well in the social movements that are taking place in this moment? What are we doing right? I mean, I think that the resistance that that's the resistance that sprung up, um, you know, beginning with the the women's marches, um, is doing a lot of things right. I mean. On the whole, we've created a large sense of crisis for the Trump administration, which, um, you know, at this point, most of our victories are of the negative sort. They're in what hasn't happened that they hoped would happen, right? We're, we're fighting defensive battles. That's okay, because we need to, because we have a lot to defend that they're trying to attack. Um, but, you know, I, I, I mean... Obviously, so far, they've been stalled on immigration. We can cross our fingers right now. As we speak, the things are playing out around the health care bill in a way that it's hard to, to predict. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they were hoping, you know, Steve Bannon certainly walked into that White House hoping for a much more aggressive rollout of executive orders um, and hoping for a whole series of legislative victories. And they haven't had either. I mean, they've gotten some executive orders up, but as we saw, the immigration orders were first, you know, uh, really powerfully challenged in the streets and then have been powerfully challenged in the courts. Um, you know, so I think, uh, uh, you know, in that sense, the, um, the, uh, there have been a lot of successes to point to. Um, you know, and, and uh, what, what's been so striking has been um, to me that the, the vibrancy, there's so many new people who are coming out and there's this sense, um, the, the big shifts that I was looking at, the shift to um, a movement of movements um, is really, you can see being fully realized that the character of the resistance that we've seen in life is, you know, it, it's almost like, um, you know, the, our movement has so many different facets that like the immigration folks take the lead one week and the climate folks take the week you know, the lead another week and folks who are working on police brutality and you know that um, and but not in, in not in a sense of isolation from one another I just read the sociologist has been um, uh, studying who's been coming to Washington since the inauguration of the protests and one thing that she found that's a real departure from what she'd seen in the past is that in the past when people would go to say a climate march and they'd be asked like what issues are you most motivated about they'd be like climate and the environment 
And now people are checking all the issues. They're passionate about it all and they're getting the way, they're getting the connection. So people are saying, yeah, I'm concerned about, you know, immigration and deportations and I'm concerned about police brutality and I'm concerned about women's right to choose and our reproductive autonomy. Like I'm here today because it's a climate march, but I care about all these issues. So that to me is a shift um, that says we're doing something right, that we're understanding better how to um, be rooted in what motivates us the most directly and passionately, but stand in, um, in different kinds of solidarity with one another as we, as we organize. Um, and, you know, there's, there's been a good mix of tactics, I think, you know, there's, it's been, it's been pretty marchy. It's been, there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of street <laughs> protests. Um, and, um, you know, it, it was maybe a little much that there had to be three big weekends in a row of marches, but, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to see, um, a little more direct action happening. I think we will. I think there was a lot of fear that people had to break through um, for, for good reasons. But, um, um, you know, uh, another thing that I think has been really uh, striking and distinctive about what's happened in the last couple months is that I, I see people engaging with electoral politics and, and the electoral realm and the legislative realm in a new way. Um, there's a way in which that 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 part of my book called Small Change is a way in which people kind of moved so out far so out far outside the system in in certain periods of defeat, you know, to create these new visions on the margins um, that they kind of disengaged with those realms. Um, those 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 visions and dreams are really important in, in sustaining our movements. But I, I tell the story about in 1980, there was this um, women's Pentagon action uh, where it was a different era in 1980. You could just walk right up to the Pentagon when you were having a protest, like among other things. So it was this group of, of white women who were trying to, to do weave together like eco-feminism and anti-militarism and into this seamless vision. And they, you know, they were kind of witchy and they, they were casting spells on the Pentagon and they, they wrapped yarn through the doorway, through the handles of the doorways and stuff. It's kind of very theatrical action. Um, and in the, all their like unity statement and all the stuff that they, they put out uh, around this, this protest, which they worked on for like a year, they didn't even mention the election, the 1980 election in which Ronald Reagan was elected. You know, this like massive change that was going to have enormous consequences for every issue that they cared about. And they kind of acted like it was a non-event because they were so far outside. They were like, well, they're all warmongers, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, they are. Mm-hmm. But um, when we pull so far away, mm-hmm. that seeds all of that terrain <laughs> to them. And so I'm very interested in how much of the new organizing energy is trying to find, you know, whether it's like indivisible or swing left or flippable, like all these formations that are trying to find a way, find new ways to pressure uh, elected officials, run people for office, you know, think about electoral challenges, but not get absorbed 
right into the Democratic Party. I mean, all of these things are these independent formations, and I think that's very interesting. And I, I don't know where that's going yet, but it's new and it's different and it's interesting to see, you know, can some of some of these outsider organizing practices and and certainly these more radical critiques be brought to bear in this work at this moment. So I really started organizing uh, intensely when a friend of a friend was killed by the police, Damo Dominique Franklin, in 2014. And he was killed in May, and Mike Brown uh, was killed that August. And so we were preparing, getting ourselves organized, not knowing right, the, the sort of uprising that was about to take, really, really take everything we were doing. Uh, and. and it, it gave it more power in so many ways, but it just magnified everything that we were doing. Um, and so that, a lot of my organizing, I have seen a disproportionate number of victories in the, the few years that I have been organizing. Um, and I'm constantly asking folks that have organized before, the, and for much longer than me, you know, for me, I, I you know, we won reparations in Chicago, right? Like that, and that, that, that literally had never happened before for police brutality. And I came in at the, t the very, the last few months of that. So for me, it, it, it distorts if I worry that it distorts what is possible right and how change happens mm. and so I try to ask you know f what what is possible and I, I, knowing you don't have a crystal ball but what feels possible to you what do, what do you not I'm not going to ask what how do you have hope but what do you have hope for um right well I mean I have hope because I've seen because I've seen victories and because mm -hmm. I've seen it work and also because the alternative is a despair so deep that I don't know where you go and what you do with yourself. I mean, um, part of the hope, part of the hope that I have is just the will to keep fighting and mm -hmm. just not just the stubbornness to keep. But I mean, I mean, I don't know. It, you know, obviously this is a very scary time. I mean, I think, um, you know, we could we could be witnessing the early stages of a. Um, a dismantling of what democratic institutions we have that um, is so profound that the whole game really changes and the old rules don't apply and we're, we're going to be you know looking to um, folks who have experienced organizing in you know outright autocracies for our, our lessons on how to how to survive and persist and, and win I don't, you know or um, or this could be um, you know four horrible years that then set the stage for something very different moving forward. I mean, where the one advantage to having a long view of our movements is seeing even when it feels like um, all we've won, you know, is like a defensive victory or we have or we've lost completely seeing what can come over that of a longer term. Um, I was the mobilizing coordinator for the huge anti-war protests in New York in 2003-2004. Um, February 15, 2003 remains the single largest day of protest in world history. There were like millions of people took to the streets all around the world. You know, it was enormous in New York. It was enormous all across the U.S. Um, it was on every continent. Um, uh, I forget what our final count of cities was, but it was something like 900 cities and towns and countries around the world. Enormous scale, huge number of people. Um, it was, you know, it was the apex of mass mobilizing model, right? And it had absolutely zero effect on 
the progress of that war. George Bush rugged it off, called it a focus group, and you know went ahead and invaded Iraq anyway. We're still living with the damage and consequences. Uh, the people of of um, you know Iraq and and the surrounding region are are, are um, obviously living it are the ones who are really living with with the consequences of of that incredible crime. Um, and so uh, you know it was a, it was very very discouraging to be part of this. You, you feel like, boy, if we've ever mobilized people power, it's right. all these people out in the streets. I mean, it certainly led me to ask some hard questions about that particular tactic and what it does and doesn't accomplish. Um, but uh, with a longer view, for instance, you know, I was able to see um, that, for instance, one of many things that came together in Ferguson that helped that work advance um, was that there were relationships that had been built in the anti-war movement that then were called upon in Ferguson, like people who came together and made stuff happen. Oh, I, it's a podcast. I can say made shit happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're good. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and made shit happen, you know, and, and relationships, it was kind of like bearing fruit after many years. You know, it takes a fruit tree a long time before it produces fruit. You know, so seeing like, oh, yeah, some some... I'm just seeing this little piece, but there's other parts of that. You know, I'm sure there were other places where relationships were built that then, you know, provided part of the foundation for something powerful. It certainly is true in Standing Rock as well. I mean, that there were relationships that were built in the anti-war movement that then helped support and facilitate that work. So, um, so part of my sense of hope is seeing even in the moments that seem dispiriting, there there's something that 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 comes of our work that it's not in vain um and um and but uh you know more to the point i think um you know we we, we've seen that although this administration has um you know uh enormous ambitions to do harm it's it's also um really incompetent and um our uh the 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 scale and passion and persistence that we've already seen in the last few months of protesting are are keeping them on edge, are are making them um, screw up more, and you know keeping keeping them a little off balance. I, I think that in itself is a win. Like just keeping them kind of off balance, having to anticipate us, not um, having to keep, be constantly. Um, denying our force even as they're feeling it like that that's that's something to hold on to and and it's, um and in this upsurge of you know again mostly defensive organizing I, the hope that i have is that we're we're building new structures and networks that will carry forward to 2018 to 2020 and beyond uh can you speak about the, the the strategies of nonviolence and militancy and how and how they get pitted together right and so it's sort of nonviolence versus militancy and do you have any advice about that or insight on that? Yeah, I don't think um, nonviolence and and militancy need to be opposed to each other. I mean, um, I think it's important to say if you even just go back forty years in. U.S. history. If you go back to 1971, which is when my book begins with this May Day action, this is a time where people were just coming off a period where, you know, 
Some groups were experimenting with, you know, using guns as theatrical props in public as a political statement. And some groups were um, embracing the, you know, saying that they supported the idea of armed struggle. And other groups were involved in street fighting, where they were, you know, physically fighting in the streets with cops. And um, people were using bombs as political statements routinely. Compared to all of that, the movements of the last 20 to 40 years have been so profoundly nonviolent that, you know, things have shifted. So we, we spend all this time talking about whether the breaking of a handful of windows is violence or not. So we need to remember, like, nobody's setting off bombs. Nobody's kidnapping people as a political action. Like, our movements are profoundly, profoundly and deeply nonviolent. Mm -hmm. Sometimes property gets damaged in the course of actions. Me, I'm interested always in movements that, that use tactics strategically. I personally think window breaking is very rarely strategic. I'm not going to say never, but I have yet to be persuaded of a case where I thought it was strategic. There are other forms of property destruction that I think can be very strategic. Like, for instance, if you have to cut through a fence to get into a site that you're going to occupy. Um, that some people would call that, you know, not nonviolent to do. I, I, I'm okay with that. So these debates, you know, th there's, there's a lot of um, debate in our movements about what constitutes nonviolence and what doesn't. And that's been true for a long time. This 71 mobilization I talk about is this moment where, um, at least on um, the white left, there was this attempt to say, well, can we um, re-embrace nonviolence, but in a way that doesn't have that aura of piety and passivity that sometimes we associate with it. Like you can be nonviolent, and that doesn't mean you're just going to be sitting there waiting for the police to, to cart you off, and, and you're going to go limp, which is a fine thing to do in some cases, but like it's not the only way you can be. You could also be like blocking something and trying to get away and not get busted, right? Like that's another way to blockade, right? There's many different approaches. And so this was an attempt to, you know, to have a kind of nonviolence that was unruly and disruptive and militant. And, and we've seen many strains of that. And, and to me, um, you know, again, strategy should always lead, that we should always be thinking about what's going to be the most strategic, but that within that, you can, um, you know, I, I'm, I don't embrace nonviolence because... Um, uh, I necessarily think it's philosophically superior in other cases. I, I think that what I've seen in practice is that the, the costs that the state imposes if our movements aren't nonviolent are so high that it makes that choice rarely be strategic, at least in our current moment. There may be moments when that's different, but the, um, and particularly right in this very specific moment, um, you know, we've seen the, the protesters uh, at, at Trump's inauguration who were part of an anti-capitalist march of about 200-some people in which three windows were smashed. Um, I, I passed by them later that day. I saw how many windows it was. It was really not very much. The burning limo happened much later. If you mm -hmm. see articles that have the burning limo, limo as the illustration for something about the court cases that those protesters are, are facing, that's a lie because they were all in custody when the limo was set on fire. And there's more than 200 people who are now, well, they were started out being all charged with felony riot. And they've now had eight, seven or eight other charges added. So they're facing 
between one and 10 years of prison for being in this market. They're being charged, um, like if you were wearing black, that's being, they're trying to charge that as um, conspiracy, that you were conspiring with the other people because you were all wearing the same color. Um, uh, you know, so uh, even if people aren't convicted of these charges, that's 200 important activists and all their support networks who are going to be tied up for years and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours of movement lawyer energy all are going to be tied up fighting these charges because somebody chose to use the tactic of, of smashing a handful of windows during that march. I look at that, and I mean, I am in solidarity with those protesters. I'm not going to denounce them in any way, but I, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, uh, that the calculus doesn't really work out as seeming strategic. You know, the, the payoff of whatever might have been accomplished by breaking those bank windows um, compared to the level of, of repression that has come, you know, I'd rather, you know, live to fight another day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you share, uh, so close us out, a passage, a quote, something that you, your favorite part, if you have one. Well, I don't know if it's a single favorite part, but it, mm-hmm. um, but this is a, uh, this is how I ended the chapter. Um, it's about act up and, and it's imitators. It's in your face. So this mo- this moment that I see of this this kind of turning point of our, our movements getting smarter and more strategic while still being you know quite radical in their ideas and their presentation. Um, I said waves of activism always recede for one reason or another because they succeed because they fail because movements sabotage themselves or are sabotaged from the outside, because the organizers who create them burn out or sell out or become discouraged or win something real and move on to another fight. The activist style that was so novel and edgy in the late 80s ran its course by the mid-90s, but the movements that created it transformed the practice of radical organizing in the United States in lasting ways. Their bold imagery, sophistication, daring, and political flair found their way into everything from the hip-hop criminal justice activism of California's Third Eye Movement to the blockades that famously stopped the WTO meetings in Seattle. Most importantly, their concreteness and radical pragmatism showed that even relatively powerless outsiders could win meaningful victories when their actions were strategic rather than simply symbolic or expressive, and with movements with this orientation began to collaborate and combine their political ambitions grew. This has been another episode of the Lit Review. I'm your host, Paige May, and the book is Direct Action, Protest and the Reinvention of American Radicalism by L.A. Kaufman. Special shout out to our sponsor, Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership. And next week, we'll be speaking with our friend Hoda about Edward Said's essential text, Orientalism. Got a book you'd love to hear featured on the Lit Review? Well, let us know at thelitreviewchicago at gmail.com. Keep reading.